Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Closet Security. I'm Jeremiah Bomek, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World most haunted house. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book, The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com. Hello, I'm Annette McDougall for the Pop Show Network, here live from Hollywood Boulevard, minutes before the world is about to end. Fear, rage, panic, paranoia, and $20 baptisms offered on Sunset Boulevard are going to do nothing to change our fate. Yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in a
from the snow-capped mountaintops of Middle Earth. Orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. coincidence that Stephen I'm talking shut up excuse me if it was a coincidence that last year had a four in it and it was also the fourth season uh you know excuse me like oh wow that's really my fault you know don't you know what Stephen you're just glad that you still have a job okay what do you mean I don't pay you anything yes I do Stupid idiot. He says, I don't pay him anything. Shut up, Steven. I've been trying to still collect unemployment. Anyway, (laughs) how's everybody doing out there? Did everybody have a wonderful New Year? Maybe a Merry Christmas? I didn't save Christmas this time because, frankly, it didn't need any saving. 
I mean, you know, Jesus was born. I think he did all the saving. I don't think I needed to do any saving. I mean, if he wanted me to do any saving, I'm pretty sure he would have told me. <laughs> no, we're, we're pretty tight, him and, he, him and I. I mean, grammar. So, by the way, if you don't know this already, um, I wanted to thank, uh, first of all, our show's official composer, Daniel Edenfield. He's always just cranking out some kick-ass music, and you'll be hearing his stuff throughout the show. But the two little beat clips, I was going to say beats, but that they have beats in them. But the two songs that you heard that I just played, one of them was called Let's Get Started. And the other one, I kind of, you know, I kind of name it Interlude. It doesn't really have a specific name, I don't think although you hear my name in it quite a bit, uh, both of those were made by the extremely talented Holden Strianez and Ricky Mosher. And these are both, like, very, very talented musicians. Um, I personally think they're better than Skrillex. I don't care how many times I'm going to say that. You can call me crazy if you want. I think Skrillex is an idiot. I don't think he knows what he's doing. And yes, I know, yes, Stephen, I know I don't like dubstep. What does that mean have to do with anything? Well, okay, but hold on a second. Okay, Stephen seems to think that because I don't like dubstep, I shouldn't comment on it. Now, let me tell you something about that. And by the way, this goes to all of you out there who have been giving me hate mail about this. And yes, there is actual hate mail about this. Not about the music, not about Holden and Ricky's music. It's about me commenting that somebody is actually better than Skrillex, who is, uh, hey, he's a famous musician, okay? I'm not going to take that away from him. All I'm saying is that if it, what does it say to you that I don't like dubstep, I actually abhor it, but I love how these guys do it. In fact, they are pretty much the only if they're calling their music dubstep, which I'm pretty sure that's what they're calling it, that's basically the only dubstep I do like. And what does that tell you? That means that that's good. See, the problem I have with the majority of dubstep music is that it's not music. It's just like gobbledygook. It doesn't make any sense. There's no there's no patterned rhythm to it. It's just, no. Steven, that's not patterned rhythm. This, that's not patterned rhythm. That's like somebody throwing up on a synthesizer. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I know that's what Skrillex sounds like. But anyway, these guys don't sound like that. These guys actually have melody, they have rhythm, and they have style. Those are three things that Skrillex lacks big time. And, you know, I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of guys out there that are just like Holden and Ricky, who are trying to make ends meet. They're trying to make it work. They're trying to get their names out there. And those are the guys that I feel for. Those are the guys that I promote and that I want to be famous. These other people that get, you know, get money thrown at them just for one show. And, and, and hey, listen, that's cool too, you know, because everybody starts out some way. But I'm just saying... There's, you can tell there is a difference between somebody that is a true musician and someone who's just a name, you know? 
And I'm not just going to be dropping names here and there. You know, I just scrumped. I did. I did say Skrillex, but I'm not going to say anybody else. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. You know me. I'm crazy like that. But, you know, I actually don't have time to for that. Tonight is going to be one hell of a night because what, what do you mean? I always say that. Shut up. God, Steven, you're a really chatterbox today. God, shut your mouth. Drink your daiquiri. God, you're such a yuppie. What? They know what a yuppie... You know what, guys? Google it. If you don't know what a yuppie is, Google it. And by the way, if you want to call in to the show, I cannot promise you that I'll be able to put you on the air. But if you do want to call in and comment on anything, calling me an idiot, saying how awesome I am, whatever, you can reach me at area code 347-237-5187. That's area code 347-237-5187. And by the way, for those of you that are tuning in right now, welcome aboard to the Graveyard Shift. This is the greatest talk show that ever has been, is, or ever will be. We talk about all kinds of subject matter, the paranormal, the weird, the funny. We do celebrity interviews. We do pop culture, comics, anime. You name it, we do it. And Well, not you name it. We don't talk about sports because sports sucks, except for chess. <laughs> Come on, who cares about football, right? I could totally kick any football player's butt. I mean, come on, right? Steven, what are you doing? Why are you locking the door? <laughs> okay. Anyway, so for those of you who don't know, you can listen to us on the internet at www.blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift, or you can go on iTunes and search for us, The Graveyard Shift. Make sure it's the right show. There are other shows called The Graveyard Shift, unfortunately. But, you know, ours is the better one. You just have to find it because, you know, sometimes gold is hard to find. Get it? See, I got you guys on that one. So anyway, you can subscribe to us for free on iTunes. You And by the way, you can join our Twitter feed, hashtag Emmy Shift Show. See, I used to say pound sign. I don't say that anymore because I'm cool like that. I say hashtag. That's right. I'm awesome. So there you go. Those are different ways you can listen to the show. Now, tonight, I will start the season with a bang, with a very cool interview between myself and Mr. Frank Joseph. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, Emmy, you've already interviewed this guy last season. Well, yeah, it's been a while. Hello. Last time, him and I talked about Atlantis. Well, tonight, we're going to talk about one of his books that was released in 2013 called The Lost Colonies of Ancient America. Now, you might be wondering, why are you talking about this with this guy? Well, first of all, you know me. I love this kind of subject matter, and that's basically what this show is about. We talk about old subjects. We talk about the paranormal. We talk about the ancient history and things like that. And you know me, guys. I'm more of a realist. You know, I mean, yes, I go for the weird and the wonderful and the and the paranormal and stuff like that. But, you know, nine times out of ten, I, I need to touch it to know it's real. You know, I mean, if there's a if there's a ghost peepee, I, I got to touch that ghost peepee to know it's there. What? I'm not gay for ghosts. Maybe you are. Well, I what do you mean? Uh, so what if I'm the one that said it? Well, but you're the one that has an issue with it. You know, uh, excuse me. Stephen has an issue with gay ghost marriage. No, you do. I. I don't care that you didn't say it. You did, Whatever. Steven is against gay and ghost marriage. There, I just said it. <laughs> you don't have a mic. You can't interrupt me. <laughs> Asshole. Anyway, so, yeah. Um, it's going to be 
a pretty lengthy interview, guys, so just kind of hang in there. I will be playing it at the end. It's going to basically be the, the entire show, pretty much. And I really don't have a whole lot of time. So I'm going to just go ahead and get into the stories right now. There's been quite a bit, first of all. Now, you know I always have to have a Bigfoot story, right? Because Bigfoot is big news. Get it? Because his name has big in it. And I said Bigfoot. And and it's big news. That's <laughs> funny, right? Oh, my God. Anyway, somebody, this fisherman, right? He said he emailed this local news station saying that he had a photograph of what he claimed to be Bigfoot wading through a swamp near USF. Now, for those of you who don't know, USF is in my neck of the woods. And apparently this guy saw Bigfoot. Well, actually, we call him the skunk ape down here because he smells. I mean, wouldn't you think? I mean, hello, that should be his name, shouldn't it? I mean, why don't they call him skunk ape up north? What, he doesn't smell? He uses Febreze or something? So anyway, uh, they sent this photograph. You can actually see it. In fact, I am going to tag it or however you say that stupid thing on our twitter feed right now no not our i'm gonna do it on our yes there it is twitter 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 where art thou wherefore art thou twitter there it is here we go oh it's too much maybe if i do this there we go how's that now it let me tweet it okay there we go so yeah, I just put it on our Twitter feed and you can um you can find out more about it there. It talks about it says that he was just he noticed it while he was fishing and in the Hillsborough River at Lettuce Lake Park. Now that's actually that's a very close park. I mean you can just go and go to it. And um he was over the phone, he told uh he told the news station that he had a former FBI agent look at the 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 picture. And um anyway what happened was they pulled up the information on it. The data was taken, shutter speed, and whether it was processed through Adobe Photoshop. And um, guess what? It turned out the the photo had been run through Photoshop. <laughs> so when they confronted the guy, they said, no, he only saved it on Photoshop. So, I mean, obviously we have to believe him, right? Because why would anybody want to fabricate a picture of Bigfoot? I mean, seriously, that... That would be such a, a a low, horrible, terrible thing to do, right? Wouldn't it? So, I don't know. Moving on. Have any of you seen that story about the UFO that it was all over Reddit? And for those of you who don't know Reddit, what Reddit is, Google it. R-E-D-D-I-T. Please, I don't have time to explain it. It's like a forum online. talks about all kinds of stuff. People talk about all kinds of stuff on it. Well, on Reddit... This video was posted on this UFO video, this UFO that somebody saw, and it took them by surprise. This person said they were driving home after work when the UFO caught their eye. They pulled over and they filmed it. And uh, anyway, it looked what you know. They said it couldn't have been a plane because there was no noise and they never heard a crash. So they just said they saw this orb flew straight up into the sky and disappear. So once again, I know you guys want to know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to go ahead and tweet that for you. God, I can never get used to saying that. I'm sorry, I just can't. I mean, maybe Steven can. I don't know. He doesn't like gay ghost marriage, so maybe he doesn't want to say it. Shut up, Steven. You don't know anything. Okay, now let me see how much time. Well, I'm trying to, excuse me, Steven. I'm trying to see if I have enough time 
to do anything else. And apparently, no, I don't. So, guys, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a short – no, I don't even have time for that. I'm just going to go straight into the interview between myself and Mr. Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Colonies of Ancient America. If I have time when I get back, I'll talk about more stories. If you want to chat about the interview, you can do so at www.blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift, or you can tweet about it on hashtag show. Anyway, without further ado, here it is, my interview with Mr. Frank Joseph. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to the Season 5 edition of the Graveyard Shift. This is Emmy, and I'm on the air right now with the illustrious Frank Joseph, author of quite a bit of things, actually. But tonight, we're going to be talking to him about one of his uh, novels that was published in 2013, Called the Lost Colonies of Ancient America. Now, how you doing? How you doing tonight, Frank? I'm just fine. I mean, glad to be here. That's wonderful. We're glad to have you. You know, um, we've had you on here before. Uh, of, of course, we last time we were talking about Atlantis. It's actually, in fact, um, I don't know if you know this, but we featured your interview a second time during our New Year's uh, spectacular extravaganza special. And we got a lot of people that were really excited when they heard that interview. They liked it so much that they asked if we could have you on the air again with us. So we just oh, had to well, reach out to you. I'm, I'm glad we struck a, a sympathetic chord there somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously you're a very educated man. You're very well-researched and well-read. And I always enjoy talking to somebody who knows their stuff, you know. And, you know, this this particular book really intrigued me. Because I'm currently working on um, a novel, uh, it's fiction, but it's based in the, the late 19th century during the Great Indian Wars. And uh-huh. I've been researching quite a lot about the ancient history of America, you know, about the Indians. And, and every time I keep researching, I run into certain different things. Like, in, in fact, I ran into things about the Vikings, about the, the Knights Templar things like that. So I thought it was very interesting of how your book actually had a lot to do with that. Now, I think the best thing to do here is to actually start out by saying, like, what exactly got you to start writing this book about, you know, these lost colonies and what exactly are the lost colonies of ancient America? Well, I, I guess we that's a very important uh, question to be addressed. What are the lost colonies of ancient America? The title of that book refers to the impact that visitors from other parts of the world made on our continent hundreds and thousands of years ago, that these people deliberately came here from the Near East, from West Africa, from Western Europe, uh, from Asia, and made tremendous impact on our prehistory. They came here as colonizers in some cases. Sometimes it's true they did arrive here as shipwrecked sailors, but then uh, that's to be understood. People traveling the oceans for thousands of years, it was bound to happen that somebody would land here accidentally. And that is probably the most that conventional scholars will give us, say, well, probably a few shipwreck sailors came here, but that didn't amount to anything. Well, uh, I found in now more than 30 years of research that people came from these other parts of the world that I mentioned, from ancient Sumer, from ancient Egypt, from Britain and France, from Japan, China, what is today Ghana, and 
came here deliberately because of the same reasons that brought people much later. That America, the Americas have always been very rich in natural resources that were not as available in other parts of the world, and that's why they came here. So that's really what the lost colonies of uh, ancient America are all about. It discusses these massive uh, influences that were at work in our prehistory and that have since been lost because there's been a great passage of time that's taken place. All of the records have been mostly lost, and it's only through the bits and pieces that archaeology has been able to pick up and piece together into a great mosaic, a great puzzle, that this story is finally beginning to reveal itself. Now this, so we're not... No, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, just to answer the second part of your question as succinctly as I can, what got me interested in this was back in the early 1960s when I was a student at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, mm -hmm. and I found that my education was failing me in trying to supply answers to the questions that my fellow students and I had. We were told then, as is now still taught, that there was no one from the outside world in the Americas before 1492. Hmm. That the discovery of America was made exclusively and entirely by Christopher Columbus, and that no one ever gave a thought ever of coming over here, even though other countries, other kingdoms, possessed tremendous navies and magnificent ships, but they never bothered to sail beyond the Mediterranean, or they never bothered to sail beyond the side of land, so we were told. And that uh, was, I think, uh, the beginning of uh, my fellow students and myself who thought this something is wrong with this picture. We're told that if people that are great enough to build something like the Great Pyramid of Egypt, that they somehow couldn't invent a ship that would take them across the Atlantic, which is a far lesser achievement, or that someone like the Vikings, who fought in hand-to-hand -hand combat or are known as the premier warriors of their time, uh, lacked courage to cross the North Atlantic. None of these uh, arguments that were put forward by the establishment uh, were convincing, and one thing led to another. I began traveling around the world and answering some of these questions. It took me a long time to piece this together. And so my book, uh, The Lost Colonies of Ancient America, represents really about 30 or more years uh, of research. It's distilled all that research, those three decades of investigation into about 300 pages. Well, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I will say it it's rather mind-boggling to me being a student of, you know, well, like like any like you or yourself and your students even that you mentioned growing up learning about Columbus discovering America for the first time and uh, you know, now I will say this, the only person we know of that we were taught in school that did any kind of exploration of any sort of any discovery of any sort before Columbus in this side of the world was Leif Erikson. And he's the, you know, he um, uh, discovered, you know, Newfoundland. Um, or I, actually, I don't know if it was Newfoundland or, um, yeah, I think it was, New, I, I believe it was Newfoundland. And um, You see, the, the difference, though, is, is that, uh, yes, uh Mainstream archaeologists begrudgingly admit that Leif Erikson came here, but um, he didn't really make any uh, contributions to anything and that it was just sort of a, a brief flirtation and didn't amount to anything. Well, this, of course, is a complete misrepresentation of what, in fact, took place, that the Norse people 
uh, long before Leif Erikson arrived here, were already in possession of great knowledge of the eastern seaboard, the, of what it became the United States and Canada, Newfoundland, you mentioned, and Labrador. All these places were, in fact, colonized by the Norse long before and centuries after Leif Erikson. It's now, this because is because of the indisputable proof that's been associated with him now at a place called Lance Meadows that the mainstream archaeologists very begrudgingly uh, admitted that yes, there was something there. But if you go into main, if you go into any university, uh, he, either he is not mentioned at all, or he's just mentioned in passing. And American history begins, as far as conventional scholars are concerned, in 1492. Nothing of significance really happened here uh, before the 15th century. And uh, this is uh, a fossilized science. It is not true. It is erroneous. It is totally outdated. Mm. And in the future, if there is to be any, um, history will be taught far differently than it's being taught now. Well, I mean, I will say this. I know I know for sure now we're get we're finally starting to see in schools and in the TV and in the the, the movies and in the documentaries uh, we're finally starting to see some of this ancient history that had never been told before about all these uh, explorers way before Columbus. Although you're kind of you're kind of blowing my mind here about the Egyptians and and all this stuff. Now, I find I have to be honest with you, I find it very well, I don't want to say hard to believe, but uh, what's the word I want to look for? Maybe uh, not not hard to believe that the Egyptians would build ships, but the reason behind it. You know, why would the Now these are these are Now let me explain to you why I say that. Because the the Egyptians that we know of are these people that believed in a very strict religious belief about the afterlife and about you know you know what you do to get to that and they had a very specific um border that they believed in that the earth lived in that the, that their gods lived in so i'm curious why they would want to go beyond those borders because to me that would seem like they would be going almost against Horus or against Ra maybe because he was the sun god and i'm wondering what would have caused them to do if it's true if what i'm hearing is correct that what would have caused the egyptians to actually build these ships and go and sail an impossible distance not only that but you would think after a few months Heck, even after one month, they would think, look, there's nothing out here. There's just water. And they would just go backwards. So what what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's an excellent point that you bring up. It's one thing to say that the ancients arrived here, but the main question is, well, why would they come here? What would bring them here? Well, in fact, we know exactly why they came here. Uh, I have to, before I get into that, though, I have to uh, disagree with you a little bit. I don't think that their uh, religious views would have prevented them from traveling. We have to understand that there was no such thing as the Egyptian religion. There were Egyptian cults. There were dozens, maybe hundreds of cults. So if you were to go back to ancient Egypt and you would ask somebody to explain the Egyptian religion, uh, they'd look at you vacantly. They'd say, hmm. well, uh, are you a follower of Osiris or Isis or 
Seth or Horace or who are you talking about here? You know, well, that's they, interesting. And they were yeah. all they were all fun, very fundamentally similar. They were linked to the Egyptian people and culture. That's true. Not always then either, because you had foreign gods that were also worshipped. Uh, but nonetheless, there were significant differences. Now, it's possible that some cult would have absolutely forbidden um, people to travel outside of Egypt because there was a there was a monopoly. It was a kind of a corrupt uh, abuse of religion, just as we see in human nature everywhere, in which uh, if you or your parents passed away, you were obliged to spend a lot of money on having them properly mummified so they could be uh, assured of going to the afterlife right. uh, by going through all of the rituals, and they had to be buried in Egyptian soil. That had to had to happen. That would be the followers of, of Osiris to some degree, because he was representative of uh, the soul's uh, regeneration, rebirth. But there were other cults that had nothing whatsoever to do with that at all. Uh, matter of fact, most of them didn't. So I don't think, uh, just to say that as a preface to what I'm about to say, I, I don't mm-hmm. think that religion as a whole uh, would have uh, would have forbidden them from uh, going elsewhere. Okay. Now, as why they came here, uh, there are two uh, pieces of unimpeachable material evidence that show not only that the Egyptians came to the Americas, mm-hmm. but why they came. In oh, you got my interest now. Yeah. In 1991, beginning in 1991, at the Cairo Museum in Egypt, which is the largest institution of its kind in the world, has, of course, the largest collection of mummies, which is no surprise, I'm sure, to learn. There was a major renovation project going on but because it was found that a great number of the mummies were in very bad shape, and they needed to the curators needed to find some way of preserving them a little bit better uh, without disturbing them. So there had to be some examinations of the mummies. And during the, during the examinations of the mummies, a little forensic research was done to find out the big question, which still nobody has been able to answer, how was it possible for the ancient Egyptians to mummify their dead and to preserve a human corpse for more than 4,000 years? That's pretty That's, impressive. That, That's still that is. It really is. That's just one teeny example of their highly advanced technology. It's true. They, they still have trumped us because we can't. Exactly. Do no, we can't. Well, in any case, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say we're still trying. There are people. There are people with modern technology that have tried to mimic and do that mummification process, and they still yeah. cannot do it. No, no. They can't even come uh, close. Most, uh, uh, famous examples, of course, were in the defunct Soviet Union. Um, right. The, the, the uh, communists in, in Russia had this thing where <laughs> they worship, they virtually worship, here is a completely atheistic society, but they worshiped the dead body of Nikolai Lenin. And they just <laughs> That's couldn't, true. They couldn't get over the fact that the poor old guy would eventually just disintegrate like everything else, you know. So they went to extreme lengths to preserve his corpse in perfect condition. And there's a whole long, disgusting and insane story about how they tried to keep this guy in mint condition decade <laughs> after decade. And, Maybe they should have talked to some comic book collectors. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did all kinds of really gross things. Well, that whole mad situation is gone, thank God. 
right. But in any way, that but the Soviet science, if you can call it that, uh, they did everything possible to preserve uh, old linen from uh, going back to, to the dust, and uh, they did succeed uh, where others hadn't. I mean, they prolonged it about another five years or so, but. That pales next to the 4,000 and more years that the ancient Egyptians were able to do. Well, in any case, um, during this process in 1991, where the Egyptian curators were trying to uh, preserve, help preserve some parts of the mummies, the mummies were in generally good condition, they were found, but uh, when Egypt was in decline and mummification was still going on, some of those techniques were kind of lost. And so the, the later mummies, like say from around the Roman period, they're not in good shape. But the older mummies, when Egypt was in its golden age, they're in fabulous shape. <laughs> they're mm. incredible. Um, but uh, again, they were looking through these mummies to try to uh, preserve them better and do a little forensic research. How did they uh, mummify their dead this way? During the course <laughs> of their investigations into these mummies, they found trace elements of cocaine in some of the mummies. <laughs> well, the Egyptologists couldn't imagine what this was. They began how looking many at kilos? Like, that's right, <laughs> how many, how many kilos? It's like, well, who, is, who amongst us are, are, are cokeheads here? What's going on? <laughs> so they thought it has got to be a mistake of some kind. So no, they sent the results around to laboratories in Europe and they verified this is cocaine. Not only is it cocaine, it's real old cocaine. They couldn't even tell how old it was. Oh my the God. researchers then began expanding their investigation, and they found traces of cocaine and nicotine as well, but mostly what? cocaine, in literally hundreds, hundreds of mummies. And huh. these mummies belong to men, women, children, uh, Nobody uh, seemed to be exempt from this. Was it in every mummy? No, but it was in hundreds of mummies. Now we're talking and about. And began to wonder, well, how is this? How is this possible? Now hold because on, hold on one second, Frank. If I may interject just a second, yeah. if I may, because yeah. I'm a little bit confused. Are we talking about in when we're saying inside the mummy? We're talking about in their bodies, like their actual, yeah. like they found it, like they ingested this stuff. Yeah. So this isn't this isn't like part of the mummification process that it just no. happened. Okay. No. Okay. No. So you heard that, ladies and gentlemen, doing mummification does not create cocaine or nicotine. So don't try it. <laughs> so now this is strange because as far as I know, nicotine is not something that is naturally available in ancient Egypt, or wasn't rather. Cocaine has is not only not available in the Nile Valley. It has That's never right. grown. It cannot grow in the Nile Valley. Not only right. that, it cannot grow anywhere in Africa. It has, it is only grown in northern Peru, Colombia, and Ecuador. The same as today, hmm. as everybody knows. Not only that, but then uh, DNA traces were done on the cocaine and found that it was in fact ingested, and that the type of co and the cocaine was in fact traced back directly to Colombia. What? Now, that information made big news around the world for maybe two or three days, and you've heard nothing about it since. The Why would the Egyptians, why would anybody in the ancient world brave the Atlantic Ocean to come to the Americas for cocaine? And what is cocaine doing in such 
large traces amongst the spread mm. out around the ancient Egyptian um, population. Right. The, the answer is very simple, and this actually sheds tremendous light on another advanced technology that the Egyptians had, and that is their superb medicine. The Egyptians were the very first people that known to have practiced brain surgery, and right. highly successful brain surgery. They call it trepanning. They had eye surgery. We know that they, some of their instruments still survive. And the question mm. was always, well, what did they use for an anesthetic? That was never understood. <laughs> the only thing that was found was prayers. Well, you just can't pray yourself into the proper <laughs> mode while somebody is chopping holes in your head or sticking a metal rod in your eye. But in fact, the eye surgery and the brain surgery were incredibly successful, close to 90% success rate, both for the eye surgery and for the brain surgery. It's like 88, 87% success rate. That's amazing. That's amazing. Look, I don't know Mm. that we can do that today. No, I don't think so. uh, I mean, in any case, this this has been well known for well over 100 years that the Egyptians were highly skilled physicians. Right. Well, the cocaine in proper mixtures, can be used as an extremely effective anesthetic. And cocaine is also used, as it is by the native peoples of South America today, not not in the abuse that it has come to now, but to achieve altered states of consciousness. This is why if you wanted to go to a specific sacred initiation, you just didn't go down and start popping cocaine. What you did is you would go to a shaman, a spiritual professional who knew how to administer certain amounts of cocaine that would not be harmful but would nonetheless achieve an altered state of consciousness that would put you in closer association with spiritual realities. Mm -hmm. And this is why the Egyptians came to the Americas, to South America. Now, as far as North America is concerned, they also came here. They came to our neck of the woods, and that was revealed by a very brilliant archaeologist, a university-trained archaeologist, Dr. Gunnar Thompson. He's a Ph.D. from the University of Illinois, and he's one of the few, very few, maverick archaeologists who has come out and said, yes, the ancients were here. And his work, which is described in my book also, talks about when he was in Egypt, one of the numerous times he was in Egypt, he went to a temple of the most important queen of ancient Egypt. Her name was Hatshepsut. She ruled Egypt uh, about 1,500 B.C. And on the side of her great temple in the lower Nile Valley, a very modern-looking, cleanly designed building, on the side is portrayed one of her numerous um, expeditions that she sponsored. And coming back from the expedition, offloading the ship, as you can see on the side of this temple to this very day, there is a stevedore holding on his shoulders a tray. And on top of this tray are piled what appear to be uh, North American corn. Looks like (laughs) corn. Interesting. Egyptologists would say, no, it's not corn at all, actually. It's not food. It's just piles of pearls. Well, don't look. It could be, perhaps. So then, Dr. Thompson, who is not a, uh, a paleobiologist, uh, but was 
thought that it looked less like piles of pearls and it looked like the corn that he was very familiar with, did in fact go to paleobiologists mm-hmm. and showed them um, photographs that were taken of, off the temple without telling the paleobiologists exactly the source for these photographs. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we identify this exactly. This is a form of North American maize, which grows only in North America. We can tell by the leaf it's a very accurate reproduction hmm. of this. And he has then uh, was able to identify this corn that is portrayed on the side of the Temple of Queen Hatshepsut as, in fact, being a type of maize which still exists. It's still it, it's a, a rough form of maize. It's used mostly for uh, feeding cattle rather than people eating ears of corn. And so there's a, here's another example. The Egyptians, in other words, had to come to both of the Americas, North and South America, for some very important commodities that they could not obtain in their own countries. Now, Egypt was a very wealthy country, it was a very well-fed country, but there were times of great starvation when the Nile did not always behave as it should, and there were seasons when uh, starvation was rampant, and the civilization came actually close to falling a few times because of failed crops. And, and it was essential, mm-hmm. therefore, that you could... Corn is relatively easy to preserve also as well, so this the corn that was brought back was to feed their livestock. And this was absolutely essential for maintaining the survival and existence of the Egyptian kingdoms. And as, going to, as far as going to South America for the cocaine... That was essential for their medical practices. That made possible, we now know, their brain surgery, their eye surgery, and all these other delicate surgeries that they were so skilled at performing. And also to be part of their their spiritual practices, which were to achieve altered states of consciousness. No, that's fascinating. That really is. And that does explain, you know, if we now... I have a, an interesting little theory for you. Um, I'm kind of fast-forwarding a little bit, but I still want to rewind after I say this theory. Now, are you familiar with the account of the sea people invading a certain area of Egypt? And that was kind of the catalyst, uh, well, or at least historians, modern-day historians, seem to think that it was one of the main catalysts of the fall of the Egyptian um, empire as we know it. Are you familiar with that account? I've written uh, about the Sea Peoples, with the Egyptians called the Metwesh, uh, in several books, one especially called Survivors of Atlantis. I write about them at, at great length, actually. They were also known as the Hanabu. Uh, these are all names that refer to people that have come from very far away. Right, right. And and I remember us talking about them, and I I was thinking about it in reference to this particular discussion. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if one of these times that the Egyptians, like let, let's say we, we we definitely say that they went and visited America or visited Central or South America and they did this. Well, who's to say that one of these times one of the other cultures that were there did not want them to be there? Or maybe uh-huh. a rival tribe, a rival tribe saw them and thought, wait a minute. When they go back to their original, wherever they're from, they're going to talk about this place, and other people are going to know about it. We don't want them to know about it. Well, let's just say, let's say, let's just for the sake of argument say they went to visit the Incans, just just for the sake of argument. And let's say the the I don't know a rival tribe of the Incans saw them and said, "Oh, wait a minute, we got to stop this because then other people are going to come." Well, 
Who's to say a scout ship didn't follow them without them knowing about it, saw where they were, saw where they lived, came back, got more ships, and then went to attack, and that is how the Sea People came came up to uh, came into being. Maybe the Sea People were all. I mean, this is just another kind of idea that I had. Maybe they were one of the cultures that the Egyptians made contact with over on this side of the world, and or maybe a rival culture, and they decided, well, you know, we better do something about these guys because they keep coming over here, and more and more people are coming, and we don't want our rivals to do better than us, so we better do something about it. So, I mean, well, I, I know it's a little bit out there, but, you know. No, I don't I don't believe so, and I, I think it shows your, your thinking in the right direction. Um, there's nothing wrong w- with uh, that theory, actually, because I, I believe that one of the reasons why we don't know much about these ancient peoples that arrived here for thousands of years is because there was tremendous rivalry amongst themselves. That if you went over here and you got a monopoly on something as important as cocaine or something as important as this particular corn, you didn't want to share it with the rest of the world. And this is what, this is what makes the big difference between Columbus, who when he made his discovery, it was announced to the whole world. But when the ancients came here, they were like our modern corporations they wanted they had industrial secrets that they wanted to preserve so they had power over these the origins of these minerals that were not or minerals or food sources or whatever that were not available in the old world so right. i think that's entirely possible you know there's one interesting thing that kind of suggests what you're talking about could be correct about 20 years ago there was uh, an attempt a successful attempt as a matter of fact uh, to demonstrate that the ancient Inca that you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. perhaps possessed the uh, maritime ability to cross the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And so there was uh, a recreation based on the little that is known of the ships that were operated by the Inca. And we do know that the Incas did operate ships. They operated right. of ships, actually. But like anything else, a wood or a reed vessel is not going to survive, you know, 500 years, you know. And um, so, and this vessel that they thought would possibly succeed did, in fact, cross the South Atlantic. This is about, uh, I believe, a little less than 20 years ago because it was written up in our magazine, Ancient American. So it's not impossible that something like that could have happened. Hmm. I think that there was a lot of rivalry going on amongst these various peoples, and my impression, though, is that the difference between the modern colonization of the Americas that we all know about and the ancient colonization that we know so little about was that when the ancients came here, they came here would appear to be very respectfully. There does not seem, I, I find very little evidence of uh, conflict between the native peoples and these newcomers. I find mm-hmm. very little evidence of exploitation by these newcomers who had a strong technological edge. What I do over the native peoples, what I do find is that when these foreigners arrived, in many cases they were regarded as gods. An example of that is, the uh, most famous example I can think of is the feathered serpent. The feathered serpent is known to the Aztecs as Quetzalcoatl, right. as the Mayas as Kul Kul Khan uh, was known to the Zapotecs as Gukamans. So all of these, literally, you can literally say all of these pre-Columbian peoples, the Aztecs, 
the Maya, the Toltecs, they all talked very highly of the feathered serpent. And the feathered right. serpent is described as this white man with blonde hair and a family of like-featured people and followers, magicians, who come across the sea in the fleet of ships. And when they arrive, uh, they don't uh, set up an empire. They don't lord it over the people. They give the native peoples all these gifts. They're given the gifts of the loom and astronomy and mathematics and city building and writing and medicine and all these things which these native peoples did not have before. So rather than imposing themselves, they shared with them. And as a consequence, the feathered serpent's memory is highly revered. He's just described not only as, as white and blonde, but also bearded. And, of course, it seems rather ridiculous, impossible that a native people who were not capable of growing beards and certainly not featured like that would have invented something like that. Right, and not only... Highly of him because he was kind. He was not right. like the conquistadors who drew their swords at the first sight of uh, Native Americans. And I think that the intelligence of the Egyptians and the rest was so to come as beneficiaries. And it makes sense because if you're landing on a continent and you're a little bit outnumbered, right? Well, you better not come in here swaggering around. It's best mm -hmm. if you just get along with them for for their benefit as well as your own. And that common sense appears to have predominated amongst the Egyptians and the Sumerians and these other peoples, not amongst the Vikings apparently, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, not all peoples follow this, but the majority apparently did. And right. that's what I think what, what happened. That explains how this big enterprise they pulled off was successful for so long. Well, not only that, but if you remember your you know mainstream history, there is a very, very vivid uh, account that says when the Spanish came to the Incans and the Mayans and the Aztecs, they were expecting them. And that seems a little strange because they as far as they as far as we were taught that was the first time that anyone had ever gone there across the sea why would they expect anybody and they even thought that these people were um Quetzalcoatl because they kind of looked like him you know they looked like their representation of him and it makes you wonder well wait a second if they were expecting somebody that means they knew that means they were used to someone going there in the first place Absolutely. And who was, yeah, and then it kind of makes you wonder. Well, hold on a second, even more. Look at yeah. all these. Look at all these things that these. Because you know, there's something that there's no. There's just something that's no that mainstream history cannot deny. If you look at, and I've been to these ruins. I've been to the ruins in Mexico. I've seen the Chichen Itza ruins, and I've and I've and I've even went to old areas in Spain like the old gothic quarter and the and the old uh areas in Madrid that show all these stories that are still around today that are still being told today and how all of these cultures have links connections you know you find hieroglyphs in Incan in the Incan ruins and the Mayan ruins and the Aztec ruins that are almost identical to the ruins to the hieroglyphs you find in Egypt well Gee, I wonder, maybe the Egyptians taught them how to write that way? Or maybe they taught the Egyptians. Who knows? The point is, there's a very obvious 
similarity between these cultures that and and hello, the Incans mummified their dead too. How about that? How about that? I know exactly. And it's like, come on. It doesn't take a lot of thought to wonder that there is some kind of a connection between these cultures. Um so I don't know. It's just it, it it's always fascinated me. Now, get, getting back to your book, there well, those was those are all really quite excellent observations. I underscore everything you say word for word. It's just simple observations like that that kind of begin to demolish this whole edifice of no, Columbus was one and only <laughs> discover America, and there were no influences from the other side of the world. But that obviously uh, is not logical. Well, well, what if I were to tell you, Frank, what if I were to blow your mind for a second? What if I were to tell you that when I was in high school, I interviewed a gentleman whose name I will not mention because he would not want me to mention it. Um, he was a representative who was in close contact with the king of Spain. And this was back in the early 90s. In fact, this was in 1992. And I was doing a, an article about the, I think, what, what, what was that, like a 500-year anniversary of Columbus's, uh, you know, oh, yeah. voyage? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, okay. So I thought, well, what better way to, you know, do that? I'm I'm a Span, you know, I have Spanish blood in me. I have, my oh. family is, is one of the most ancient last names, Diaz. Diaz has a, is a very ancient last name. Oh, yeah, um, that, yeah. And I thought, what better way to do that than to write an article about Columbus's voyage, you know? So anyway, what I did was I interviewed this representative, and um, he told me in the article there were certain things that I could write in the article, and there were certain things that I couldn't. And I thought it was very odd, like, okay, why would you do this, you know? But whatever. And th- you know, the things I wrote in the article were things we already know about. Okay, fine, Columbus had three ships, blah blah blah. Well, but there were certain things he told me not to write, but I still remember them to this day, and I tell everybody I possibly can. <laughs> and these are the things he told me. When Columbus was first shopping around his idea for his um, uh, voyage, he had a lot of hard time getting um, financial support, of course, because back then there were a lot of captains and explorers and would-be heroes that wanted to be the first to claim land in the name of their fatherland or motherland. And, you know, so what? Why would I want to give money to you? Who are you, you know? And Columbus was just a, a meager peasant. He wasn't right. anybody special. Well, right. it so happens that Columbus got his hands on a certain papyrus scroll that told him what he wanted to hear, that there was a trade route. Now, the way that he read it, because he didn't read uh, – oh, by the way, the papyrus scroll was not written in hieroglyphs. It was written in Latin. Oh. And this – and yeah, oh yeah, I'm not I am not joking, I'm not making this up. This is something that I was told, and I will never forget it to this day. And then this papyrus scroll was written in Latin, talking to him uh, now the way that he read it was that it was talking to him about a trade route to the East Indies, and it showed him a passage that he took as going through uh what would, would what would be um almost they say um uh Africa. And he thought, wow, this is strange. Why would there be a, a passage going to Africa? Well, you and I both know there is actually a passage going to Africa, the, the Cape of Good Hope. Right, right. The, you know, So he thought, oh, maybe that's what they're talking about. Well, he decided, no, that, that would take too long. 
So instead, what he did was he went to track down the family of the writer of the papyrus, and he found one of the ancestors to that scroll in Genoa, where he's from. And they told him that what what actually was happening was the writer of the papyrus scroll was like the great-great-grandfather, whatever, a voyage with the Egyptians to this land that didn't have a name, that was populated by people that had feathers on their head. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets better. Not only that, but that these people regularly did business with the Egyptians. And so, now, Columbus didn't think much of this. He didn't really think anything about Egyptians or whatever. He just thought, well, actually, he did, but he didn't think that these feathered hat people were, you know, like, he he thought maybe they were just the Chinese because, you know, he heard that the Chinese did, we, they did wear some strange headgear. Mm-hmm. Well, so what did he do? He took the papyrus scroll, you're going to hate this next part, and he wrote over it. He wrote over it so that it looked like it was saying to go across the sea instead of through the passage. And then then he showed that scroll to the representative of the court of King Ferdinand. Exactly. Now, before you ask, well, Emilio, how did did this representative that you spoke with know this? Okay. He had a glass case in his office that had a plaque in it. Inside the plaque was a very old piece of parchment. I think. Oh, Yeah. Now, I don't know what the heck this thing said in it. It had some really, really faded stuff on it. I have to this day, I don't know what it was. I asked him what it is, and he said that was something that was passed down to me by the king, and I'm supposed to keep it for a specific amount of time, and then I'm supposed to pass it to somebody else. Now, I think this person, again, whose name I will not say, was a member of some kind of group that they are entrusted with certain things, if you catch my drift. And I think this is one of those things, if you catch what I'm trying to tell you. Well, you know, what you're saying, uh, unfortunately, makes so much sense. Uh, I was in Spain about 20 years ago. I went specifically to Barcelona. And the reason I went to Barcelona was because at the library there, well, they have several, but the main library, this great institute of the city of Barcelona, they have the largest collection of materials related to Christopher Columbus. So I wanted to go there and see some of it. I did see some of it. But I was kind of surprised and annoyed to be told that some of the materials associated with Christopher Columbus are classified. Some of the Mm. original documents associated with him, for example, some of the um, entries into his diary, or in his logbook, rather, uh, you cannot read. So when you buy a copy at Amazon.com of Christopher Columbus's logbook, supposedly there, it's not complete because the library at Barcelona has not disclosed, after more than 500 years, certain elements in his logbook have never been published, have never been seen by anybody outside of Barcelona. Not only his logbook, but other papers that I don't even even know exist 
are also classified, and no one is allowed to see them. And when hmm. I asked why, they just said, that's library policy. In other words, uh, isn't that incredible? I mean, so that, what that you're is telling incredible. is entirely possible because there are documents that are still classified. It's hard to believe after 500 years that we wouldn't be able to still read it. But nope, uh, those materials at the, at the Barcelona Library, which is the place to go. Uh, the Madrid Library is also great for, as you naturally think, you know, capital of the country, for Columbus material and everything about Columbus at the Madrid Library. I was able to read. You can you can find everything there and see things there. They have a great museum there too, but not in Barcelona, which has more than Madrid has That's and more original material than Madrid. But you cannot see it all. You can see most of it, but not all of it. Why? That's very interesting. I know Isn't it's like well, you you would amazing? think like who who could it hurt right? Who would it? I mean, who would yeah, it? I mean, Exactly. I mean, Columbus's family doesn't even exist anymore. There's nobody that can make claims to anything. So it's, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, that is amazing. And you know, I yeah. wish we could get into it more. We've, uh, I've, I've taken up so much of your precious time already. One more that... thing about Columbus. Sure, sure, that's please. That's pretty bizarre. When he was having trouble, as you say, raising uh, money and credibility for his uh, scheme to cross the Atlantic to, to go to the Indies. Of all the places that he went, he went to Norway, we know that, to talk to about the Vikings and things like that, what they did. But one of the places that he went was was um, Tenerife in the Canary Islands. Yeah, and that's true. And when he true. went there to the Canary Islands, he supposedly, and I, I know this for a fact because I visited the home where he stayed. I was really on Columbus's case for a time, <laughs> let me tell you. Because I thought, you were stalking him. Weird, you know? <laughs> so I... I, I Frank, I really, uh, I well, think, I think as the years... we can conclude from this, Emmy, mm-hmm. is that 
we don't know the details, but I firmly believe, and I think you probably do too, that Columbus had in his possession knowledge that was taken from the ancient world of the sailing directions to the Americas. And that's sure. not surprising, because what was Columbus? He was a Renaissance man. He lived in right. the Renaissance. The Renaissance means the revival. What the people in the Renaissance were doing was they were dusting off all the old ruins and records of the ancient world and learning all these things that had been forgotten during 500 years of a dark age that preceded them. And the Renaissance was due because, uh, and, and was made possible because of all this knowledge from the ancient world that had come back again, that people had forgotten about. And Columbus was part of that. He was investigating the ancient world to find out things, and he did find out things. I believe he did have an Egyptian papyrus. I absolutely believe that he, he did have that. And I believe that in going to the Canary Islands, he already knew in advance about the Canary Island Current, which he sailed himself with his three ships. So I think that Columbus, he got here uh, because of the uh, knowledge he got from the ancient world. He couldn't disclose that because then his claims uh, for being paid and remunerated for all these things would have been in jeopardy because the, the king and his enemies would have said, well, why should we pay you? And the ancients already figured it out, you know, that sort of a thing. Right. Yeah, and so, he was poor. Yeah, he was he very poor. Very careful about that. Right, exactly. He had a family to support. I mean, he had to, you know, let's give him some credit. He did He did have a family to support. He wasn't a rich man, you know, nope. before this. So he really had to be careful. I mean, I'm not saying that excuses it, but it sure explains it. I mean, hell, I, you know, I've got three kids myself, and yeah, well, uh, I don't know. being what it is, you know, I don't blame him at all, really. I mean, he had a lot of enemies at court and everywhere. You know, most people don't realize that uh, from, I think it was his second voyage, he was arrested and returned to Spain in chains, in, uh, locked in a, in a cabin uh, yep. down in his own ship. He was put on trial for murder. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, he had a pretty rough life, you know. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Well, Frank, I want to thank you so much for coming on the air with us and discussing this. There, ladies and gentlemen, there, there's no way we can discuss every single thing. I mean, this is just an absolute tip of the iceberg of some of the things you can discover for yourself in this book. I mean, he talks about all kinds of things. There's no way we can go into it all. I highly recommend it that you go and you order this book. You can get it on Amazon.com. You can order it at your local bookstore, uh, The Lost Colonies of Ancient America. I think it's fascinating read for anybody, regardless of what your interest is. Um, and I'm I'm sure after hearing this interview, you're, you're, if you weren't interested before, I'm sure you are now. So, Frank, I want to thank you so much for coming on the air with us. Well, I'm sure we'll have you on again anytime sooner. Do you have any books coming out anytime soon that you want to promote or talk or tell us about? Well, I've got one coming out in March. It's called Atlantis and the Coming Ice Age. That's quite a long stretch from what we've talked about today, but uh, I'll be sure that you get uh, an advance review copy. And uh, Oh, that'd be great. that yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to get you on again to talk about that. I'd be very interested in that. So we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about that at a later date. And and again, thank you so much for coming on, Frankie. You have a great night, my friend. We'll be right back, gang. Hang in there.
Mr. Cosby, thank you so much for coming on to our show. I'm so glad we could get this time to talk, just you and me, and now we can finally clear up all this mess. So uh, just tell me, how do you feel? Boy, am I glad to be back here. I'm no good on my own. I was given two old days, and I just went crazy. Okay, uh, Mr. Cosby, please, you know, let's, come on, let's get serious here. Let's just talk about these allegations, shall we? I don't know where you get these people from. Sometimes I think it's drugs. Well, they've been popping up all over, sir. I mean, you you know, what did you think would happen when you did what you did? Now your body doesn't want it, so it starts to kick it out whether you want to hold it or not, so you begin to... Sir, sir, that, that, sir, that was not appropriate at all. You're just, you're putting yourself further and further in the hole with that one, okay? Let's just stay on task, shall we? What exactly... Were you thinking back then? I mean, you know, you were with these women. What was going through your mind? I mean, you were a happily married man. Now you feel it coming. All right, I'm ready. Holding on, holding on. Going for a ride, yes. Bring it out, yes. Here it comes on. Where's your brother? And your muscles No, Mr. Cosby, no, no, that's... What, what are you doing? Uh, look, look. No, no, can can we please stop that? Let's get serious, please. I didn't come here to tell you that. Okay, well, then that's better. I, uh, wanted to discuss some very serious matters. Now we're getting somewhere. Go on. Dentists. Dentists? What? Dent? What? No, no, look. I arranged this interview so you can talk to us about what you were really up to back then in the late 60s. Now, come on. Oh. God, no. Sir, control yourself. Uh, look, just tell me at least that you use protection. Come automatically, the muscles tighten and push. <sighs> I'll just I'll pretend I didn't hear that. So I guess we can just forget the question of whether or not you're guilty. What have you got to say for yourself? Oh, God. Stop it. Dear God, that's disgusting. Look, could... What, look, what would you just what would you say to these people if you saw them today? Oh my God, this interview has gone to poop. God, will you look at the poop poop? Okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. No. Enjoyed that. 
really awesome interview between myself and Mr. Frank Joseph. Always a pleasure to interview him. He's isn't he just great? He knows a lot of stuff, right? So we'll have him on. You know, who knows? Maybe later in this season, maybe next season. We'll have to see when that book of his comes out. And uh, who knows? Maybe if I can get him to sign a copy, I might give it away. We'll see. I've got actually several books that I'm thinking about giving away as gifts. We'll just have to see. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I really don't have time to get into all the the cool little stories I had, but you can see them on our Twitter feed at hashtag Emmy Shift Show and enjoy them for yourself. Tune in next Friday night. I'll be airing another interview between myself and someone. Uh, I believe next week will be me and Tracy Roberts from Positively Autistic, where she will be discussing the continuation of her amazingly epic uh, story of her adoption and her story of looking for her birth family. If you don't know the story yet, please go into our archives. I think it's in season four where her and I discuss all of the story between behind her looking for the birth her birth family it's really an amazing story and i'm not just saying that it really is something to hear so she'll be talking to us about uh you know her progress so far and for those of you who have not been following on facebook cuz she she talks to us on facebook from time to time when she can um it's pretty it's 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 pretty amazing but i think there's a lot more to tell and uh hopefully she'll be able to share some of that with us uh, next Friday, I'll be airing that. So make sure to add us on your iTunes and your uh, podcast. If you haven't so far, you can get the, get us on blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift. You can get on our Twitter feed at hashtag Emmy shift show. And now as far as the Android devices are concerned, I still I think you can still hear us at the blog talk radio website because I have an Android device. And. I wasn't able to get, you know, obviously I don't have iTunes on it, but you can still, you know, listen to us there. So, um, and if you, you know, for those of you who don't know, we have a Facebook group page. Just go to Facebook and look, and look for the Graveyard Shift Talk Show group. Um, there's the one that's the newest one. That's the one that you want to join. And I'm always sharing all kinds of anecdotes and stories on there. So at any rate, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all of you for uh, tuning in tonight. And we'll see you again next week. You guys have a safe weekend. And I also wanted to take this opportunity before I say goodnight to um, um, kind of uh, give a little bit of tribute to those artists that lost their lives in that horrific attack at the Charlie Hebdo um, satire magazine office in uh, France. Um, You don't have to agree with what they do in their magazine. You don't have to agree with their satire. Um, This is just me saying you know, I'm sad that they lost their lives and that, um, I, you know, I'm condemning the uh, the attack against them. So, um, but at the same time, I'm also condemning uh, racism and uh, bigotry and, and all that kind of stuff that goes along with all that. So anyway, thank you, everybody. Be safe out there. Treat each other well. God bless you guys. See you next week. This is Emmy, and I am punching out here is chupacabra a good friend of mine who has a really cool band promised them i would play this you've heard me play it before and here they are with out of time because we are out of time here we go see you next week
I'm standing there waiting to use the payphone. And this guy who's on the phone turns around and tips his hat like this. And who do you think that guy was? Emilio! <laughs>